Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. We'll stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to turn to John chapter 10. We'll pick up at verse 11 and read through 18. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches him, them, and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is the good shepherd. And Father, I pray as we think on this passage that you would help us to see who Jesus really is. Give us eyes of faith. Give us minds that comprehend your word. I pray for those, any who may be blind and deaf, that you would give them sight and hearing. Lord, and I pray that we would be fed, that we would be built up, that we would be strengthened in you, and that we would live our lives by faith. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the way that you provide for us. Provide for us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So Jesus begins this passage with another of those I am statements. There are seven of them in the Gospels. He speaks about who he is and what his work is. And so we're, we're going to be focused on who Jesus is as we walk step through this passage. And the first thing is this, there's one good shepherd, Jesus Christ. There's one good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. There are under shepherds of Jesus. There are under shepherds of Jesus Christ, pastors and elders who are called to follow in Jesus' example. But there is only one good shepherd. Jesus made sure that those Pharisees, right, they've been battling, he's been battling the Pharisees for many months. He made sure that those Pharisees that day knew that he came to save the weak, to save the sick, to save the broken, to save the helpless. 
In other words, he came to shepherd sheep. All of whom, right, sheep are weak and stupid and helpless on their own. They're weak and stupid and helpless. Secondly, what made Jesus the good shepherd? What made Jesus the good shepherd? He laid down his life for the sheep. That's what made Jesus the good shepherd. A good shepherd is willing to risk his own life for the weak, for the helpless, and even for the stupid, right? The good shepherd will do that more than from a faithfulness to the task, right? Just, I I have to be faithful to what I've been called to do, or a deep sense of responsibility. He serves the sheep because he loves the sheep. He loves the sheep. He loves his sheep. If he did not love the sheep, he would abandon them when any situation came along that might be dangerous for them. Or dangerous for him. Jesus did not merely risk his life for the sheep, right? He voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep. In obedience to his father, Christ came to die for the weak And the helpless, he says, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Go die. Father said, it's time. Go die for those sheep. Go die for those sinful, helpless, weak weighed down, rebellious sheep. That was the whole mission from the Father to the Son. Lay down your life for my sheep. Go and die. Go and die. Go and die for the weak. Go and die for the unlovely. Go and die for the sinful. Go and die for the wicked, for the rebellious. So the question comes up, are you his sheep? Are you one of his sheep? Right? What qualifies you to be his sheep? Well, it would be the same as for the animal, wouldn't it? Um, four legs, fluffy white fur, and an annoying bleeding voice. If you have those things, then you're one of his sheep, right? No, no. Um, that's not how we resemble sheep. That would be good if that's how we resembled sheep. But it's, it's, it's worse than that. Right? Are you stupid? Are you weak? Are you helpless? Do you get caught in the fencing and, and you're unable to get out? <laughs> right? It is far more likely that you and I spend most of our time telling people how wonderful and accomplished and strong we are. Right? Any conversation we enter into, any relationship, we quickly want to get to, well, here's, here's who I am. And you go through your accomplishments and your jobs and your background and your education and, your, and, and this and that, what part of the country you're from, right? And um, wouldn't it rather be more honest if we said, you know, 
I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I am weak. I am tempted. Many times I'm dispirited. And that's, that's me. Um, what would it mean to know our weakness? Right? To realize our weakness is more than anything else to understand that we're crea- creatures and not God. We're creatures and not gods. And that not only are we creatures, but to know our weakness means that we know that we're sinful creatures and not holy. Not holy. I, it's astonishing, but I have to convince myself that I'm a sinner at times. And I have to convince you that you're sinners at times. It's astonishing because the evidence is everywhere, pretty much in every day. We feel it. To realize our weakness is more than anything to understand that we are creatures and not God. We have fallen short of the glory of God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Most are not willing to break away from what their mothers and therapists have told them. Right? You're, you're good, good, good. You're so sweet. You're good. The scriptures paint a slightly different picture, don't they? They do not flatter, right? They, they don't come to us and flatter us. They do not flatter man like that. From Adam's fall to the, the harlot Babylon's fall, the scriptures repeatedly announce and prove that man is by nature a, children, a, a child of wrath who lives in the lusts of his flesh, Ephesians 2, 3. If you want to be flattered or bury your head in the sand, ignoring the mass of evidence surrounding you about man's depravity, just listen to the people, all the people who, rather than pointing to a corrupt nature within man, will point to certain things outside of man that account for his sinfulness. Right? Things like, well, he's, you've had bad examples. Only reason you sin is not because you're bad, but because you have bad examples. That was the argument of Pelagius, as old as the hills. Right? And, and you'll hear people say, well, you know, I remember arguing with, with uh, a friend about this, that, that the reason, you know, there's sinfulness in the world is because we just, we haven't educated people. Lack of education. Or you, you'll often hear repeated that the reason there's conflict, the reason there's sin in the world is because we're poor. Poverty. Poverty causes sinfulness and conflict. Or what you hear most, most drummed today is that conflict, sinfulness, you know, all the nastiness of life is produced by, guess what? Inequality. Inequality, right? As, as soon as we can make, you know, as soon as we can androgenize everything, right? Just melt everybody into this one single 
quality, well, then everything will be good. There will be, there will be no longer oppressors and oppressed. But that's ridiculous and a fool's errand, right? But so to realize our stupidity, to realize that we are stupid and weak and helpless is to realize that we are corrupt inside. We are born in sin. We are born with a sinful nature. We are are sinful right down to the core. In fact, we are, as Scripture says, dead in our trespasses and sins. We need rescue, right? We need help. We are sheep that have wandered away and gotten stuck on the rocks, and we're too stupid to find our way back to the fold. And anyway, we're we're powerless to what needs to be done to remove ourselves from the rocks. We're powerless. We can't do it. Here's another thing from this passage. Hired hands, not the shepherd or the owner of the sheep, will not lay down their lives for the sheep. Hired hands don't lay down their lives for the sheep. Right? Jesus paints the picture of, of the flock being watched by a hireling, right? a hired hand, somebody who, who is just there to, to get the stipend and just there for a short amount of time. Um, Someone who does not love the sheep, but is just a hired gun. When he sees that the sheep are in danger, what does he do? What does he do? In contrast to the good shepherd who is willing to die for his sheep, right? the hireling runs away when he sees the sheep are in danger. He cares... Think of this. He cares more for his own self-preservation than he does for the sheep over which he has responsibility. The wolf comes in among the flock and that hired hand runs away as fast as he can. I am out of here. Gone. The wolf is then free to rip into those stupid, helpless, weak Sinful sheep. Jesus says he flees, notice this, because he is a hired hand and is not concerned with the sheep. He's concerned with himself. He's concerned with his own life. He is concerned with his own comfort. He's concerned with his own safety. He's, he's concerned with, with living to see the next day. And he leaves behind his responsibility when it gets hard. And so being so concerned about himself, he lets those who can't defend themselves fight. And they die. And they're torn apart. The Pharisees, what did they care about? What did the Pharisees care about? Well, Scripture tells us Jesus said this, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Right? So, so 
So they, they tie up heavy burdens, they lay them on, on the weak, right? The helpless, the sheep. They're putting huge burdens upon them. And then, and then they're doing everything not because they love the sheep, but so that they'll be noticed by men, right? Look at me. I'm serving the sheep. Look at me. Give me applause for being a shepherd. And they, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue, right? They, they don't have very much self-awareness, right? And so they just want honor. And so they go, if they're, they're invited to a banquet, they're going to sit at the head table without being asked, well, I'm a Pharisee. I, I shall take a, a seat of honor. I am, I'm a renowned rabbi. I think I'll sit up front. They would, they would expect that, and that's what I deserve. And also it says, Jesus said of them, that they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love it when people come up to them and show deference and like, oh, sir, you're, you're you know, what a wonderful exposition of scripture you gave. Well, that was, you are so smart. I mean, you have such great thoughts and you express yourself so well. I'm glad you're my rabbi. And he soaks it in. Loves that. Loves that. And they shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. What an indictment, right? That's the Pharisees. Jesus says of them that they shut off the kingdom of heaven from them, right? And so, so, not, only, so, so not only are they not serving the sheep and seeing that they move to safety, they're actually pushing the sheep away into danger, They're shutting people off from the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says of those Pharisees that they do not enter into the kingdom of heaven themselves. They prefer respectful greetings in the marketplaces than being right with God. It pays off very much quicker. Jesus also says that they devour widows' houses. Are widows like sheep? Yeah, widows are weak. Widows are in a very vulnerable position, right? And yet these Pharisees go and take advantage of their weakness, devour their wealth, devour their houses. And they, for a pretense, make long prayers what the Pharisees do for a pretense for a show to be to be seen they make long prayers and in Luke's gospel we read this about the Pharisees they were lovers of money they loved money and they scoffed at what Jesus said Luke 16 14 they were scoffers when Jesus went around teaching they were the ones who were like Can you believe what this dude is saying? Can you believe what he, you know, can you believe, he's a blasphemer. I mean, constantly scoffing. 
at what Jesus is saying, which as leaders of the Jews is afflicting the sheep. Here comes truth. They're scoffing at the truth. People see them scoffing at the truth and the people scoff along with the scoffers at the truth. The Pharisees were in the game for themselves, you see. They were like hired hands, and so whenever they had to make a choice between themselves and the flock, guess who they chose? They always chose themselves. They always chose themselves. They chose to pursue religion and God and their brand of righteousness because it it stroked their ego and, and filled up their bank accounts. They loved money. So when a man like the man who was born blind comes along and lauds Jesus Christ, they are incensed, right? They are, uh, they, they go crazy. They will not have a man loving the sheep that they have weighed down with heavy burdens and from which they make their money. They don't want some man coming around and, and, and taking away their means of wealth. And not just their means of wealth, but their means of, of self-esteem. Celebrity Christianity bears a remarkable resemblance to the religion and works of the Pharisees, doesn't it? Uh, and every one of us, not to bash celebrity Christianity, but to bash ourselves, every one of us has a heart that is easily deceived and can... T- toward the same kind of hypocrisy and heartlessness. All those things that the Pharisees did, sins, are temptations for us. Right? We can easily despise people for their sins. Have you ever despised somebody for their sin? Well, maybe not somebody out there you don't know, but have you ever despised somebody in your own household for their sin? despised them, like could not look at them, thought they were a despicable person, just just disgusted by the presence of somebody who had committed that kind of sin. Right? We easily can despise people for their helplessness, their weakness, their sins, and become Pharisees who refuse to show mercy and kindness to anybody. We all do this. We all are quickly Pharisees. Right? Have you ever done this? You've, you've seen someone sin and you become like that Pharisee described by Jesus who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Man, I thank you, but that's a sin I could never commit. I'm, I thank you that, that I am not like him. I thank you that I'm not like her. How many times have we thought like that? Perhaps not in those words, right? It, it comes out like this. I can't believe so-and-so would do such and such. I can't believe he would do that. How could anybody do that? You know, I can't believe my father would shout and get angry. Meanwhile, you give yourself a pass on all kinds of anger. 
My son is such a lazy bum. Meanwhile, how many hours have you spent on the couch this week? I mean, that's the Pharisaical attitude. Beware of adopting the attitude of the Pharisees. Before long, you will be unlike Jesus, who had compassion on sinners, who, who was a friend of sinners, right? Who was a shepherd of the stupid, weak, and helpless. And he did not despise them. That's the fruit of Pharisaical religion is always despising everybody else. Always despising and never having a tender, tender love for somebody who has committed terrible sins. That was Jesus, his entire life. Compassion toward rebellious sinners. Compassion toward those who hated his father. And had proven it time and time and time again. Luther writes, By our own nature we are knaves to the very hide. And yet we expect everyone to be pious. (laughs) With open mouths we do not want to look at anybody but strong Christians. We ignore the sick and weak and think that if they are not strong, then, well, they're not Christians at all. And others who are not perfectly holy, we reckon among the wicked, and yet we ourselves are more wicked than they. That is what our evil nature does and our blind reason that wants to measure God's kingdom by its own imagination and thinks that whatever does not appear pure in its eyes is not pure in the sight of God. That's Pharisaism. Unlike those Pharisees, Jesus Christ came to save those who were utterly weak and helpless. He came to save people like us. He did not despise us for our weakness, but loved us to the point of death on a cross. He was the good shepherd who went after all of the straying sheep, right? Rather than despising the flock for their weakness and sins, Jesus lived to strengthen them. He did not break the bruised reed. He healed the sick. He bound up that which was broken. His eternal kingdom is one where grace and mercy abound. The Pharisees' kingdom was of the earth. and It was worldly and ruled by the vice of hypocrisy and leavened by malice and wickedness. What a contrast. Jesus is the good shepherd, still rescuing erring sheep, still drawing men to his kingdom of consolation, his kingdom of comfort. He's still saving them and bringing them a true righteousness, a true righteousness. Jesus, as the good shepherd, knows his own and his own know him. He says that in this passage as well. His own He knows his own and his own know him. There is a familiarity which characterizes the relationship of Jesus with his people between the good shepherd and his sheep. He knows who they are who are members of his flock. Ryle says he knows their names, their families, their dwelling places, their circumstances, their private history, their experience, their trials, 
And I add to that their thoughts and their sins. He knows all of those things. And, wonderful to say, though he knows them, does not despise them. And there is a love and knowledge of the Son of God in the hearts and minds of his people. Thinking from the opposite, from our perspective. It is not just that Jesus knows us. We would expect that of the omniscient God. He also, when we are born again, imparts into us a knowledge of him and his ways. For I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know him. Right? Those born again know God. There is a union between God's people and his son. Those who have been born again are said to be in Christ. In Christ. Scripture puts it this way, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now that's all nonsense to a worldling. That's all nonsense to somebody without the Spirit. That's not all nonsense to an unbeliever. But to the Christian who has felt that newness of life, has felt that change of of location from from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, well, they know what intimacy with God is like. And they are transformed and unashamed of the gospel. They... The weak who realize their weakness by the Spirit, within them find strength. The strong who boast in their strength, right? Who boast in their strength are deluded and go simply from worse to worse. So if you claim to be a Christian, but do not study your Savior. If you claim to be a Christian, and do not know your Savior, if you claim to be a Christian and do not strive to be like your Savior, well, is it logical to conclude that you are truly a member of his fold? I mean, so many other memberships, right? If you're going to drive an F1 open-wheel vehicle, you got to know how to drive the F1 open wheel race car and have gone through the training and gone through the school and then you have to have the gear and the team and, and certification and then you have to go to the driver's meeting at the beginning of the day and they only let the drivers get into the cars to drive the cars, right? And so we, we understand it about every other thing, but when it comes to the church, we have this notion that you can be a Christian and know nothing about Christ. You can be a Christian and never open your Bibles. You can be a Christian and just like have some secondary, tertiary, or just distant knowledge of God. And yet, the intimacy between Jesus and his people that's laid out in Scripture is, bears no resemblance to that. 
None. Do you have a relationship to God that you can point to that makes you an oddball in the eyes of the world? That makes you feel awkward every space you get into. Do you know the sweetness of fellowship with God? Have you cried over your sins that crucified Christ? Have you rejoiced and, and, and uh, walked with your head held high thinking upon the forgiveness of sins through the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God? Do you crave worship and singing God's praises? Right? Did you come here this morning not, not for any other reason not for any superficial reason, but that your heart needed to cry out to God Almighty in praise. That's why you should be here. Do you know the sweetness of fellowship with God? Do you crave that worship? Has He, he has done so much for your soul and, and He has called you into His everlasting and peaceful kingdom. You've been invited. This and... and and you should feel that. This is the way things work. Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. So wonderful is that relationship that Jesus likens it to the relationship he enjoys with his own father. Think of that. Eternally members persons of the Trinity, he likens our relationship to him to his relationship to the Father. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. Next, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Another glorious truth from this passage. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus died for his sheep. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that death was more than an example of suffering, right? It was a death that accomplished something. What did it accomplish? Well, let me put that verse in context that I just read from Romans 5. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood. That death was justifying. We've been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, there it is, reconciliation. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so the death of Jesus Christ reconciled sinful men to God, the God who is ever and always holy, who cares about righteousness because he is just, the God who does not treat sin lightly, 
as can be seen in the very death of his son. That death was powerful. You see, people just don't get this. When they think about God and sin, they have a tendency to get angry and think of God as, as a prudish Karen who, who likes to concern himself with things that just aren't his concern. Right? How dare God tell me what to do with my money? That's mine, and I worked hard for it. How dare God tell me what to do with my body? Right? That's mine, and those sensations are mine. He can't tell me what to do. He has no place in my bedroom, right? But that is not the situation we are in at all. God is holy and sin is terrible and something must be done about it. Something has to give. God is holy and sin is terrible. It is unholiness, right? And perhaps the only times you've really contemplated the horribleness of sin is when you have been sinned against. At least then we get a sense of sin, don't we? We, we, we go soft on ourselves and we sin against others and we're like, I don't even see it. But then when someone sins against us, it's like, man, sin's terrible. You know, someone sins against us and the sin seems terrible. You have a sense that things are broken and you wish that 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 things could be put right. That God has done in his son. God has put things right in his son. He has righted what was wrong. He has restored everything that was broken. He has atoned for that which was blemished. He has reconciled sinful man to his holiness. Right? He did that by his death, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Stick with me, guys. A lot of scripture, a lot of concepts. We're thinking about Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. This should delight you. This is your salvation. This is your Savior I'm describing. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and that death was the most potent power in all of history. Nothing compares to the blood of Jesus Christ. It had a purchasing power that nothing in all of creation could match. To the under-shepherds, Right to not the good shepherd, but the under shepherds, the apostle Paul wrote, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man, each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, right? As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The good shepherd died. He shed his blood and the lamb and as the lamb of God. And that blood is potent for those who believe in him. 
You know, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Also, the fold or the church of God is worldwide. It's not just limited to those Jews that followed Jesus when he walked on the earth. Right? When Jesus said in our passage, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, he was referring to the Gentiles who would be converted as well. And that's a dig at those Pharisees. Do you realize that? That's a dig at those Pharisees who were so proud of being Jews. So proud of their traditions. So proud of their heritage. Right? They made it their lives goal to, to not be a blessing to the nations around them even after they had imitated the nations around them. And then hypocritically loathed the nations around them. Now with Jesus' birth, the nations are being called to faith, and the end result of this will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation inhabiting the redeemed earth. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was broken down by Jesus Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus you who were formerly far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. That is no little thing. That is no little thing. Think of the divisions that exist among the nations to this day. Think of the divisions that we see. We watch the people of Russia and Ukraine fighting and dying. We see countries at war within themselves, we have enemies that, that could eradicate us in a moment. And the division between Jews and Gentiles, which became the Pharisees' very reason to exist, is made superficial by the one good shepherd. Which is to say that the pride of nations and the patriotic impulse generally lead to superficial but very costly divisions between people. Very costly divisions. The salvation of Jesus Christ transcends the nations, right? It transcends the nations or, or it sweeps in all the nations, right? In fact, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a spiritual kingdom and it is eternal, not temporal. Christ is constituting from all the nations the people of his kingdom. Where they are citizens. 
Next, the father loves Jesus because Jesus loves the sheep. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Now, it's worth saying that that verse is a kind of anthropomorphism. Right? The love, and why, why would I say that? The love between the first two persons of the Trinity, the eternal father and the eternal son, is not based upon the work of Jesus during his incarnation. They are love, and so have always loved one another. Ryle says he's using language borrowed from earthly affection to express the mind of one person of the Trinity toward another, and accordingly we must interpret it reverently. Yet we may surely gather from this verse that our Lord's coming into the world to lay down his life for the sheep by dying on the cross and to take it again for their justification by rising from the dead was a transaction viewed with infinite pleasure and approval by God the Father. It pleased his Father. All of Christ's work, which was done to save your soul, every work that he has ever done has been for you and to, to save your soul was ultimately done so that he would please his Father. That son lives to please his father. The father saw and was well pleased by all that Christ did. His birth, his battles with the Pharisees, his obedience, his death on the cross, even his resurrection from the dead. The father joys in the son's work and the son works for the joy set before him. Which was to bask in the father's joy. And notice this also, the passage says that Jesus laid down his, would lay down his life voluntarily. What is Jesus' point here? His point is that he knew and knows exactly what he is doing. In fact, he is arranging it to happen. The Pharisees want to be done with him and they're working to kill him. Right? But he makes it known that when he dies, he dies not because he is somehow under the power and at, at the mercy of those Pharisees. No, he came for this purpose and he would use those wicked Pharisees and wicked Romans to bring about exactly what he willed. <laughs> oh, man. He submitted to death not as a victim of other powers, but he submitted to death of his own free will. And he rose from the dead by his own power. He was not passive in his resurrection or raised by the power of another. He rose by his own power. Now, we could go through the, the scriptures and we would find passages that said that the Holy Spirit raised him and the Father raised him and the Son raised him, you know, himself. This one says the Son raised himself, but what one of the three does, the other two do, and that's why scripture speaks of all three of them doing it. But here he speaks of his power to take up his own life. He is life itself. The father looks on that humble and humiliating work and smiles with adoration. He was absolutely delighted in the fruitfulness of his son's faithfulness. Right? Jesus is the good shepherd. All these things that Jesus does is a good shepherd. 
Do you know him as a good shepherd? Is he worthy of all of your devotion, of your every thought? Have you entrusted your soul to him? Is he your shepherd? Is he your shepherd? I pray he is because you will believe every word that is written about him in the Holy Scriptures and you will not be disappointed. You will never be disappointed. May this be the chorus of your song all through the days of your life. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. What a good shepherd we have. His power extends to the very protection of our souls. His power extends through an eternal kingdom. And so, last words. Love your shepherd. Love your shepherd, Jesus Christ. Love him. Know him. Right? Know your shepherd. Love him. Rejoice in this work that he's done for your soul. And know this last of all, everything that Jesus did proves and should prove to you. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you are convinced of this, that your shepherd loves you. Your shepherd loves you. He loves you with an incorruptible love and will love you always. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Son who is the Good Shepherd. We thank you that you have called us into your fold. What joy in knowing that we have, have a good shepherd, a, a powerful shepherd, a, a caring shepherd, a, sh a shepherd that is motivated not because he's going to get paid at the end of the day, but he is motivated because he loves us. What joy, Father. What peace comes through knowing these things about Jesus Christ? Father, we have known them. We have, we have experienced the love of God being poured out in our hearts through the Spirit. And so for those of us who, who know Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that we would speak of what we know, speak of what we feel, speak of what fills our hearts with joy. That we would not be ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. Because it's the power of God. And so, Father, I pray that you would increase our boldness, that we would speak of the Good Shepherd, that we would... We would look like fools to the world that, that believe that uh, a, a man who is God was dead and then lived. That we would tell people that we hinge our eternal future on that truth. That all of our reality hinges upon that one thing. Many people hinge their reality upon a psychology class they took in college or some wise saying that that grandpa once said. 
But Father, we hinge all of our lives on what is written in your word about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true truth. It is all truth. It is glorious. And so, Father, thank you for opening opening our eyes to the power of your word, through the power of your word and the gift of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would ever grow and increase in our knowledge of God, that we would not make shipwreck of our faith, but that we would prove to be the seed that was scattered on good soil, that it would grow up and it would produce fruit for ages and ages and ages to come. Father, I pray, I pray that you would uh, remind us of the truths of your scripture. Uh, our, our, we are so weak and helpless at times, Father, that though we've read your book many, many times, there are times during some days when we can't even recall a single verse. And, and that's sin in us. That's our weakness, Father. And so, Lord, I pray that the, your word would dwell within us richly. I pray that it would be our delight to know you and to be known by you. I pray that we would go after you. I pray that in our prayers that we would give you no rest. I pray that our, in our searching of Scripture that we would, we would cry out for answers and you would provide them. Father, I pray that you would comfort our souls when we are distressed. Pray that you would always be near to us, that you would never leave us or forsake us. It gives us great joy that you've promised that to us. And so I pray that we would rest in it. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would, by your Spirit, know the incredible infusion of peace that comes in believing. That they would leave behind all the mythologies that they currently believe and they would put their trust in Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, the singular Good Shepherd. who took on flesh, who became like us so that we would have a sympathetic high priest who'd suffered in all the ways that we have suffered. And he would, he would die in our place, taking our sins upon him. Lord, what glory. What glory. You truly have helped the helpless. You've given us riches and Lord, we, we, we ask that we would rest in it and our minds would, as we read earlier, be focused on those things above and not the things of this earth. Free us from our bondage to earth and the earthy. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.